I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas on the Myth of the Secular. How does anything hold together? You know, why is there a tree, a house, etc.? Why, why are the boundaries? It's wholly mysterious. Why are the connections? We just don't know. Science doesn't tell us anything about this. The mystery of life, the mystery of existence is that everything seeks to express itself to the maximum, to be itself to the maximum, but in relation to everything else. Surely that's what the world looks like, but this no longer seems like common sense. And I think only if we restore that kind of common sense does Christianity become believable again. The English poet William Blake once wrote that humanity must and will have some religion. The only question is, which religion? British theologian John Milbank agrees. A purely secular society, in Milbank's view, is simply not viable. The only choice in our time, he says, is between religion and nihilism. But religion, for him, means something more than just a private moment with God on a Sunday morning. It means a way of life. Milbank belongs to a movement called Radical Orthodoxy. Under its banner, he and a group of like-minded colleagues have argued that modern Western societies have lost touch with authentic Christianity and as a result are now living in a spiritually flattened world. Today on Ideas, David Cayley introduces the thought of John Milbank as part of his ongoing series, The Myth of the Secular. Here's David Cayley. I can still remember the astonishment I felt, it's some years ago now, when I read John Milbank's book, Theology and Social Theory beyond secular reason. The book is nearly 500 pages long, and yet it had, for me, the bracing, confident quality of a manifesto. What Milbank's manifesto denounces is the idea that human beings can ever really be understood apart from some account of the meaning and purpose of their existence. The social sciences, Milbank says, claim that they have grasped human beings and their societies as they are, in themselves. Religion, on the other hand, has been understood as mere opinion, something to which everyone has a private right, but without any standing or relevance as knowledge. But this story, Milbank says, is just that, a story built on assumptions about what people are that can no more be proven than theology's assertions. And, he continues, it's not a very good story, because nature, sealed off from the divine and considered in itself, can never be satisfactorily understood. Theology, in his opinion, has a better story. In his expression, it out-narrates social science and social theory. Perhaps you can begin to see why I was so astonished, not least with the confidence with which Milbank announced theology's return to its old place as the Queen of the Sciences, the title it enjoyed in the universities of medieval Europe. So when I met with John Milbank recently at his home in Subtle, an old cathedral town nearby the University of Nottingham where he's a professor in the Department of Theology, 
I asked what he thought the source of his confidence was. He traced it back to his childhood in a pious Methodist household in Gloucestershire. The whole atmosphere at home gave me a powerful sense that Christianity was the truth, that it made sense of everything. Mainly I was brought up in the countryside, and to me Christianity seemed to go with everything, the rhythm of the seasons, the history of Britain, King Arthur, <laughs> my understanding of literature. And then I, I was given a book that all British children were given in those days, Our Island Story, and I was suddenly struck with the idea of history. And I think from that moment onwards, I wondered how history and eternity related to each other. And then for some reason, I read St. John's Gospel when I was about nine, and the prologue immediately hit me. This sounds extraordinary, but it's true, that it, it immediately hit me. The word became flesh somehow. Oh, yes, this is how eternity connects to history. So it was, um, and then uh, I think the other thing was sort of reading mythology and particularly the stories of King Arthur, and then the sense that all those things interconnected, Christianity, history, eternity, Britain, and that in some ways, I realised sort of retrospectively, my mindset was formed very early on by this kind of thing. And eventually I realised that what I've just described was a kind of Christian romanticism. John Milbank's youthful apprehension of a world that made sense and hung together was challenged during his formal education. There, he found a world that had been cut up and divided into self-contained subjects. I had a powerful sense of duality, almost from the word go, from going to state schools, basically secular schools. I mean, there was, there was some Christianity. As, as I went on into senior school, there was less and less Christianity. In my mind, I was, I've always wanted everything to make sense, everything to fit together, so, you know, have a holistic picture. So I could never understand why I was being educated in such a fragmentary way and why I was being presented with a picture where somehow God didn't fit in, or how did God fit in, so that I was I was very, very rebellious about school and education all the way through, right through university, so that a sense of wanting to critique secular reason was bubbling up for a very long time. Theology and Social Theory, the book I mentioned at the outset, was what finally bubbled up. Published in 1990, when Milbank was still in his 30s, the work was very much an expression of its time. During the 1980s, the term postmodern had come into wide use. It summed up a sense of ending and rebeginning. What was felt to be ending was a certain modern confidence in science, progress, enlightenment, and various secular utopias. What Milbank calls secular reason. What might be beginning was less clear, but part of it was certainly what came to be called the return of religion. John Milbank sensed an opening for theology, and he seized it. I had the sense that the postmodern was a moment of opportunity. You know, postmodernism is mostly a very, very long footnote to Nietzsche. So Nietzsche's sense that the death of God is no light event. It changes everything. It actually abolishes 
man as well. All our values do really depend on Christianity. If we don't have Christianity, we have to have a whole new set of values. So the sense that postmodernism had wiped out any secure humanism, the sense that it had revealed that everything is in flux and uncertainty, it seemed to me almost obvious in a way that that was a new moment of opportunity for Christian theology. In a famous passage from his book, The Gay Science, Nietzsche tried to convey the scale of the event that he called the death of God. He compared it, variously, to the drinking up of the sea, the wiping away of the horizon, the unchaining of the earth from its sun. John Milbank calls postmodernism a long footnote to Nietzsche because it's been trying to think through the situation that Nietzsche found almost unthinkable, a world without foundation or orientation. This was a new moment of opportunity for Christian theology, in Milbank's view, because nihilism had at last been flushed out into the open and was now in plain view. One could see that the secular by itself was hollow, that it had rested all along on religious foundations. So it was no longer possible, he argued, to sustain the view that religion was a purely private matter, while the public realm operates according to a self-sufficient secular rationale. I think a very normative picture is that religion is a matter of private concern and that the public sphere is secular. And we have a kind of confusion about is secularity an ideology? Does secularity mean that we operate as if there wasn't a God? Is it a kind of methodological atheism? Or is secularity simply neutral? It's neutral between religious and non-religious perspectives. I think that's, that's what's usually said. But I think that can be much, much more problematic than people think, that if you leave out all positive influence of religious notions, then Nietzsche is right. You know, our entire legacy of thinking about why truth should matter, why honesty should matter, by generosity, kindness, care, love should matter. This comes from a religious background. Some of it's very Christian. It's not all unique to Christianity, not by any means. But it comes out of an entire religious metaphysical background. And if you say secularity is totally neutral. How, how do you access any of that stuff? Surveys recently in Britain have shown that people's whole moral standards are declining, you know, what they think is acceptable and unacceptable. And isn't this a result in part of thinking of the secular as completely neutral? We, we get the idea that the market is amoral. We get the idea that government is just a kind of instrumental mediation of resources. We get cost-benefit calculations everywhere. If the secular is neutral, what do we share in common? Happiness, but we debate about happiness. Freedom, but then, you know, we land up having to define freedom in a totally negative way of kind of non-interference with each other. And then we, we land up in debates of conflicts between freedom. How do we adjudicate those? Why do we allow some freedoms and not 
other freedoms. And then we're into questions of sort of what goals we should be pursuing. And those kind of thick values tend to come more from religions. The secular world can't flourish, John Milbank says, without the thick values that come from religion. One is left otherwise with only thin values, the verdict of the market, or the ratio of cost to benefits, to take his examples. This was hidden so long as secular utopias provided a substitute religion. But now, he argues, there's nothing left to nourish us but scientific materialism. I think what you see now is that in the Anglo-Saxon world, secular ideologies have all died, and so the ideology has become secularity itself. You know, Freud and Marx are over. So let's go back to Darwin. And, um, you know, science itself then becomes the doctrine, if you like. But, you know, science, not only does it not give us values, it's very unclear that on its own terms it's talking about anything like ultimate truth. I mean, on its own terms it isn't. It's just describing the regularities that it observes and that it can reenact in the mode of experiments. If you've got a secularized understanding of nature, then ultimately we're talking about something completely anarchic, completely meaningless, in which indeed it may well be that oddly the realities we apparently live in are, are illusory and so on. And, you know, science again and again removes our common sense understanding of things. You know, if, if you're reductive, are we really loving? Are we really intending? Are we really feeling? Are we really conscious? It undoes the entire common sense realm of meaning. As long as people go on meaning and feeling and intending, they are invoking something like God. And I think increasingly as the, the neural project of explaining consciousness fails, and it's already most neurolo good neurologists think it's failing in bound to fail, people are going to return to the sense that the mind appears to be an anomaly. And that's not satisfactory. And therefore, I think the 21st century will be neo-metaphysical and neo-religious. Humanity escapes scientific explanation, John Milbank argues. Neurology is just the latest of many sciences that have failed to fulfill the extravagant hopes once invested in them. But what can we expect in the neo-metaphysical and neo-religious future that Milbank anticipates? Such a prediction can only sound alarming to those who think of metaphysics as the obscure preserve of professional philosophers, and religion as a realm of dogmatism and pious posturing, which they have happily left behind. So it's important to understand at this point that what Milbank means by religion is almost the opposite of dogmatism or a repressive piety. He thinks of it as an exercise of reason and a freer exercise than is possible within secular limits. The great thing about religion is it preserves the sense that there's an order, but we don't fully know about it. There is, if you like, an unknown reason, whereas secular thought is always inclined either to enthrone reason or an irrational reality that we don't fully know. Sort of either we know everything or we're subservient to completely 
chaotic, unknown, unconscious forces. But religions preserve, they allow us to have sort of faith in an order, but it's an ongoing exploration. So they radically hold out the prospect that one might discover new reasons, if you like, precisely because of this sense of transcendence. Whereas I think that secular culture, it's either an endless obeisance towards a nature that's fundamentally irrational. So ultimately, you undermine reason, you explain, you know, that we're just acting as automata or something like that. Or else you retreat into a priori structures where we've made everything up, these are entirely artificial processes that are bounded by the permanent categorical possibilities of the human mind. And so the sense that you can explore reason, you can enter more into reason, you can enter more into communion, if you like, with reason, that reason is a ritual process, is only sustained by religious vision. And equally, the sense that reason is not a cold objective gaze on reality but that reason is an upshot of reality it's it's in tune with our our feelings if you like it's what nature wants us to do <laughs> and i think we need to have a much more powerful sense that the way we experience the world because we're inside nature we really do understand nature or we have a an intuition about nature. So we need to recover the sense that the shapes of reality are the meanings of reality and that uh, those shapes are continued in our thinking. So there's a continuity. If you like, nature is already thinking itself and, and we go on shaping nature. Religion, as John Milbank understands it, celebrates a world which is both more intelligible and more mysterious than secular reason can recognize. A world in which we can see an order, but never think that it's an order we can fully grasp, because there's always more. He's talking about a stance, a way of being drawn into things, as much as he is about a doctrine. Religion for him, refers to a tradition and a way of life. And this is precisely what he thinks is being lost in the contemporary world. I think the saddest thing in Britain is that most of our population, you know, they're not just economically relatively worse off compared to a small oligarchic elite, but increasingly they're deprived of their traditions. If you have money then you get ceremony, you get religious assemblies, you get Latin and Greek, you get the Western legacy. If you don't have money, you don't. You just get boring state functionaries going on about political correctness to children from the age of 11. And this is absolutely monstrous. We need to give the people back their tradition, if you like. If, and it, it's that kind of suffusion and these very loose boundaries. That's what we need, because otherwise we have the secular is as a neutral space or even as an anti-religious space. 
is just too thin. And so that people think of religion as a private matter. I agree, this is common. But it just isn't, you know. <laughs> it isn't in any country a private matter. It's much more a matter of shared ritual patterns and shared implicit patterns of belief. And if people are confined to the idea that, you know, religion is just what you want or contracting with, with other people, this would not be religious liberty at all because... Every religion sees itself as a way of life, and it needs public space in which to breathe. It needs buildings and bells or chanting from towers. Otherwise, it's not there. It needs to organize space and time, the rhythmic patterns of the seasons. It needs, it needs festivals, and it needs those festivals to be publicly recognized. And this is why... The United States is such a monstrous contradiction. It's so hard to make sense of it because it's uh, an overwhelmingly Christian country in which Christmas is now called holiday or something, you know, which is absurd. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius 159. Today, we're continuing our series, The Myth of the Secular. It's presented by David Cayley. John Milbank has inspired, and now belongs to, a group of philosophically-minded theologians who call their approach to theology radical orthodoxy. They have argued that during the late Middle Ages, Christian theology took a wrong turn, which led eventually to the modern world's misplaced confidence in what Milbank has been calling secular reason. The idea that humanity can think and measure its way to the truth of things on its own without reference to God. The story they tell is roughly as follows. Up to the time of Thomas Aquinas, who lived between the years 1224 and 1275, people understood the world as an expression of God. God could not be known directly, but every created thing in some way spoke about God. So it was possible to know something of the divine glory by what Aquinas called analogy, the likeness or resonance between God and his creation. This idea was lost in later medieval theology. Theologians like Duns Scotus, who lived just after Aquinas, put a heavy emphasis on God's inscrutable will, a will which Scotus understood as pure, sovereign power. God, in effect, was placed so far above and beyond nature that the world no longer yielded knowledge of God's intentions. Scotus and his successors treated the things that exist as distinct individual items, not as expressive signs. Nature was, in effect, detached from God. It became available, objective in modern language, laid open to human inspection and manipulation. The road was open to modern science and to the whole project of mapping and managing the world. This view is not unique to radical orthodoxy. 
What has distinguished John Milbank and his colleagues has been the boldness of their appeal for a return to the philosophy that prevailed before the West took this wrong turn, and the urgency with which they have argued that the only alternative is nihilism. Here, John Milbank speaks about two key ideas in the thought of Thomas Aquinas, participation and analogy. We know the world only by participating in it, not by withdrawing from it, and we know God by analogy, by the way in which things speak about God. Nothing that's created exists in itself. It only exists by sharing in, in the divine reality. So in that sense, is always other to itself. It's speaking of itself, but also of God. By speaking of itself, it speaks of something other to itself, which is God. And so really to talk about analogies, to view the world as the Middle Ages did, as, as like the Book of Nature, a huge book of symbols, which can only speak of itself by speaking of something else, that it's only when we see that everything points away from itself, that we, we get a sense of what everything truly is in itself. And then human culture, and hu including human language, is a sort of intensification of that symbolizing process, that human language is always pointing away from itself. It can never exactly say one thing without saying another thing. And that's because in the end, what we're trying to say is God, the infinite. So I think roughly speaking, that's the key to taking an analogical outlook. You can distinguish it, I think, on the one hand, from the idea that creation doesn't point to God at all. That would be one possible view, that God has created things the way they are, but it gives us no clue to how God is in himself. God has just willed the world to be a certain way, and we just have to accept that. And then he's willed us other instructions about how we get to heaven. I mean, a lot of there are many theologies from the late Middle Ages onwards that are like that, but I can't imagine anything more demonic than to think like this. Indeed, it sort of turns God into a kind of demon. So you don't want that. But on the other hand, you don't want either pantheism, where um, each individual thing symbolizes the whole of reality. That tree out there symbolizes the cosmos, and it's really the cosmos. Because it, it, then you've kind of somehow, you've got rid of the tree. You've oddly created a dualism, because... Really, there's only the whole, the all of reality, and individual things become a secondary level of evolution. The point about analogy and participation is rather that everything is theophanic. It is a manifestation of God, and God is present everywhere. God is speaking everywhere, but he lies beyond that. There is a transcendence beyond that. Thomas Aquinas's account of creation hovers between what John Milbank sees as two fatal mistakes. To see God as entirely beyond our knowledge, God wills what God wills and that's that, or equally mistaken, to see God as fully revealed in the things around us. The tree tells me all that I need to know. Steering between these errors, Milbank says, grants us our independence. We stand apart from God as free beings even as we understand that all that we are has been given to us.
the very thing that is most proper to us, our existence, is a gift. We're gift right down to the bottom. This is the kind of thing that perverse theologies like those of Donskotas after Aquinas tend to, to get rid of. They, they want to give us two self-standing a sense of independence as if we were kind of outside God. They lose this paradoxical sense that precisely in being what we most intimately are ourselves, we are given. So that we're, we only exist to celebrate God and yet God is the God who radically wills our independence. And this is why Aquinas is so big on the autonomy of the world, if you like. So the real heart of this paradox is that we only get the real free autonomy, integrity of the world when we see that it's wholly dependent. Creation's dependence on God is what sets it free, according to John Milbank. This is because we are, as he has been saying, both inside and outside God. The paradox for him is inescapable. If we were not separate from God, we could not be free. If we were not somehow enfolded in God, our freedom would make no sense. It would be an incomprehensible anomaly. And that's what freedom has become in the modern world, Milbank says, an anomaly without roots in the reality that surrounds us. We can never connect our freedom to reality. Our freedom is always opposed to reality or conceals reality. It becomes an either-or between human freedom and nature. And that's why you get these dreadful dualisms of nature and culture that modernity, I think, rests on so substantially. We're always in a shuttle between the one or the other. So we're either destroying nature or we have mad ecologists who think that we should subordinate ourselves to to plants and animals, you know, neither of those things is true because we are also part of nature, but we're cultural and that's part of nature, you know. How do we understand a nature that has given rise to the phenomenon of culture? This is exactly why, you know, the doctrine of creation describes reality. The doctrine of creation describes reality, in John Milbank's view, because otherwise there is no reality. Just flux, uncertainty, and an endless shuttle, as Milbank says, between a humanity that thinks too highly of itself at one minute and not highly enough at the next. This is one of the points that has been stressed by all of the thinkers allied with Milbank under the name of radical orthodoxy, that we can only recover nature and ourselves as part of nature by understanding it as God-given. A second crucial point has to do with the relationship between ritual and myth. Religion in the modern world has been seen as a matter of belief. We first believe the myth, the story our religion tells us, and then we act out this belief in various rituals. For Christians, the communion meal, the mass, would be the prime example. Milbank sees a different relationship between myth and ritual, or liturgy, as Christians call the order of worship. He thinks that the ritual, or liturgy, may bring something before us that wasn't there in advance. 
You can see this in the words of the Christian communion service, the words repeated from the Last Supper, Do this in remembrance of me. It's not just a ritual gesture towards what is already present. It's the way in which Christ is made present. Ritual and myth go together. You know, they're simultaneous. So that I think that it's always the case that, if you like, when you're in a ritual, you assume a certain vision. But the idea of the vision is there before the ritual is wrong. They presuppose each other, if you like, so that, yes, sort of God comes to us, God is revealed to us when we seek him through a certain kind of performance. So I think the interesting thing is that liturgy is something human beings make up, but it, it's a kind of enticement of the divine. It's it's an attempt to become, it's almost an attempt to become magically attuned with the divine, but not in an automatic sense. It's an enticement. You do certain things, you fall into certain patterns. It's like when you utter the Jesus prayer in Eastern Orthodoxy, and then you see God. But of course, God is, it's like Augustine's paradox of we only look for God because he must have already announced himself to us in some way. So I think it's exactly that in in worshipping God, we worship is also like a quest. It's not that we've first seen God and then we worship him, but that we're... Um, almost, you might say, conjecturing this this structure where we might entrap the divine. We, we encounter the divine. The divine sort of favours that, if you like. So that I think um, liturgy and revelation or encounter, inspiration, God arriving, these two things go profoundly together. So exactly, if, we, you know, if our feelings and our, and our imagination aren't attuned in the right way. We don't suddenly see God. The orthodoxy that radical orthodoxy wants to revive is Christian orthodoxy. The word orthodoxy is being used, somewhat provocatively, I think, in the literal sense of its Greek roots, ortho, right, and doxa, praise, rather than in the less appealing sense of orthodoxy as strict traditionalism. But radical orthodoxy's proposal still brings up vexing questions. What is the status of Christianity in the civilization of which it was arguably the source? And what is its relationship to other religions? John Milbank's spirit is ecumenical, but there is no doubt that he sees Christianity as true. How can that be? The skeptical view has been, all religions claim to be true, and that's impossible since they all contradict one another, so it must be that none are true. Milbank reasons rather differently. He sees Christianity, he says, as the fulfillment of other religions but interestingly, not because it somehow trumps their truth claims. If one sees Christ as the fulfillment of everything, then understanding that, say, he's the fulfillment of things we find in Hinduism is going to enrich our understanding of Christ. But I think that the idea that we have fulfillment in the life of one human being 
is a kind of counter-fulfillment. It's not like saying, here we have the superior doctrine, here we have the superior ideology, here we have the superior metaphysics. On the contrary, it's saying actually the truth is just one other human person, in a sense. It, it is simply a human life. It's not the law that's supreme. It's not a system of philosophy that's supreme. On the contrary, it's this one life lived to the full. And because it's lived to the full, inevitably, this is a life that ends in rejection and violent death. So that God is shown in a human person on the cross is a weird kind of fulfillment. It's a sort of counter-fulfillment. The very God who is transcendent, omnipotent and all that is this God who's hopelessly weak and apparently failed on the cross. And then, if you like, the synthesis is the resurrection, but the resurrection, it's very subtly done, isn't it? He appears to a few people. There's nothing triumphant about it at all, and it's somehow in continuity with the emergence of the church as the as the new sort of international community. So in a sense, you know, the final revelation is that this is simply the human, that all this points to the fully lived human life. And this is where God is shown. And then linked to that, we understand that God in himself is a kind of fully achieved rational expression. Uh, um, God in himself is the fully achieved creation. God in himself is a work of art that can then be, in earth and human terms, fulfilled as a community, where we, repeating Jesus non-identically, can strive towards full awareness as, as personality. So Christianity is the fulfillment because it's because it's a humanism, because it's a divine humanism, because it sees the person, the person in relation as, as absolutely supreme in a way that I think other religions only approximate towards. Christianity, as John Milbank understands it, is not in competition or conflict with other religions. All religions can enrich its understanding because it is, finally, a humanism, an account of how, as the English poet William Blake says, God becomes as we are, that we may become as he is. At its heart is a human person. There's a certain sense in which Christ is any man. It happens to be that man born at that time and so, and so on. The only way to have a sort of paradoxical universalism that absolutely values the individual is to privilege one individual, you know. So just because he is completely individual, his spirit doesn't have to be reduced to a set of abstractions. It doesn't have to be reduced to a set of laws or a set of philosophical beliefs, precisely because it's so absolutely concrete. It's this it's this concreteness that renders him universal, you know. I mean maybe John Locke would always be alien to an Asiatic culture, but not Charlie Chaplin, you know, not Buster Keaton, not Jesus Christ, I think, because the sense in which the character sort of leaps out of the context and is, is much more universal just for that reason.
John Milbank sees the Christian story as being played on a universal and cosmic scale. Jesus, as he says, is any man. So Milbank is not particularly sympathetic to the type of Christianity that focuses anxiously on whether this or that person has been saved and is thus set apart. This narrow focus to him detracts from Christianity's reference to humanity as a whole. Too much of Christianity has certainly been, it's just about individual salvation and your, your individual destiny. Yeah, and this makes absolutely no sense of the New Testament or the historicity of, of the Bible or the writings of St. Paul, nor the sense that really what we're doing is kind of stitching the cosmos back together again. Sometimes Jewish mysticism has understood this much better, that we are combining the scattered sparks of reality it's the restoration of all things. And so it goes on through the generations. We're building a reality through time. It's a kind of liturgy enacted through time. And we have to work out where we fit in, in time and space, in this story. We have to find the part we are supposed to play. And that's exactly why salvation isn't the same for everybody so that exactly this sense that this is a cosmic and historical operation allows for a more extreme individualism. You know, that you're, the way for you to be ethical is not the same way as for everybody else to be ethical. Not at all. And that isn't cutting you off from society. It's, it's finding your role. So the search for the ethical is always the search for how you should express yourself. But that's not a sort of lonely quest. It's a quest of finding the way to be with other people, the harmony with other people, the elusive occult, almost, affinity with other people. But I think that's exactly how one reconciles the sense that salvation is a totally individual matter, and in a sense there is nothing beyond the individual, with the sense that this is a very collective enterprise. And so it's not fitting individuals into a fixed generality, because individuals always leap out of that framework. Radical orthodoxy is primarily a theological tendency. Its partisans are theologians, and it is within theology, and to an extent, philosophy, that it has exerted its main influence. But in John Milbank's view, it's also a political idea, a challenge to our way of life as much as to our way of thinking. Secular reason has failed, he says, and as a result, the societies that once put their faith in it are undergoing a moral collapse. We have witnessed the collapse of secular humanism, both in, in terms of philosophy and in terms of practice. We're surprised by the erosion of daily behavior, but then we shouldn't be surprised because of the increasingly ruthless, anarchic behavior of bankers, businessmen. 
the increasingly corrupt behavior of politicians. And it, you know, it's so easy at this point to say, oh, well, yeah, things have always been like that. But I don't accept that. You know, I think, you know, fascism and state socialism in the 20th century represented unique degenerations. And we're now seeing the third ideology of liberalism also represents a, a degeneration. And we're seeing the increasing combination of monopolistic economic power with bureaucratic political power, an increasing rise of the oligarchs, and an increasing dispossession even of the middle classes who are becoming proletarianized. You know, it's almost like a fulfillment of Augustine saying that, you know, without justice, rulers are just successful robbers. And, and that, that increasingly, that's what it looks like, I think. So I think, yeah, I think we're seeing the march forwards of practical nihilism. I think that northern Mexico and Russia, that could be the future. Forestalling such a future will require a new politics, John Milbank says a politics that draws on the ideas of both the left and the right. At the moment, he thinks that neither is prepared to face up to the gravity of our situation. The right, with its faith in markets, has an obvious share in the slide to oligarchy. But Milbank is equally critical of the left. Its failure, he says, has been its unwillingness to recognize that society cannot thrive without virtue. The emptiness of the secular left at the moment is that all it's able to intone are kind of mantras about more equality and more democracy. And um, actually, I want more democracy and more equality. But they are not thinking about the paradoxical circumstances that guarantee these things. What I mean by that is, just to give sort of two quick examples, if you don't think everybody should have exactly equal shares, you know, and nobody does. The paradox is that you have to give an account of what justified inequality would, would look like. And I think the answer has to be that justified inequality is to do with giving more rewards and more power in the sense of more scope to the virtuous, those people of talent and integrity where, wherever they arise. And so I think that... We're having a new sense that a, a politics of equality has to be combined with a politics of virtue and that we need schools of training for the powerful, if you like. That You know, the Victorians knew that. They didn't do it well enough, but we've forgotten about that altogether. So part of the problem of the oligarchs is that in a world where theoretically we don't have a hierarchy, actually what we have is a hierarchy of total shits so that people have absolutely no sense of honour and responsibility. And we can't, one can be as cynical as one likes about honour and responsibility in the past one should be. But if you don't have it at all, then you've entered into another dimension. There's a qualitative shift. People constantly underrate how bad things can be and don't allow enough for the relatively better. And I think that's now the scenario we're in danger of getting into. The problem that John Milbank sees on the left is that a politics of equality is not modified and complemented by what he calls a politics of virtue. Democracy becomes a panacea, 
and one overlooks the fact that democracy is only as good as the people who participate in it. The paradox is that democracy needs something other than democracy because you can't vote about everything. You can't vote about what you're voting about. That what you're voting about is a set of offers, a set of proposals. And these proposals are, if you like, nurtured by one's cultural virtue. And they're nurtured in a way that is certainly involves a kind of thick democratic participation, you know, localities with traditions, but also involves leadership, it involves the few as as well as the many. So unless you qualify democracy with the aristocratic principle, understand it stood in the real sense that Aristotle and Plato understood it by. In other words, again, the need to have a tradition of virtue, the, the sense that education must be pursuing virtuous goals, that half of political reality is education, and that this is not democracy. You know, maybe that was the last revolutionary illusion at 1968, when the students wanted to democratize education. And because we found we couldn't do that, we've gone into a totally reactionary liberal politics. But we need to see that what they were looking for to have a different answer to their worries about education. It's not, it's not pure democracy. And so it's seeing this educational aristocratic dimension. Education is an example for John Milbank of a field in which what he calls an aristocratic ethic will always have to complement a democratic ethos. This is what he thinks the left must learn. But he is equally insistent that the right must be more attentive to demands for equality and economic justice. This makes Milbank what, in Canada, has sometimes been called a red Tory, a name like radical orthodoxy, that combines supposed opposites. In fact, a former student of Milbank's, Philip Blonde, has recently published a book called Red Tory, which draws on Milbank's ideas and is said to have influenced British Prime Minister David Cameron's idea of the big society. The same tendency is evident on the left in Britain, where Labour MP Morris Glasman has coined the term blue labour, to say the same thing the other way round. Either way, John Milbank says, this is the direction his country needs to take. Either this reign of oligarchy is going to go forwards, or we have to renew civil society and we have to have something like what um, Stefano Zamani calls a civil economy. In other words, we have to have a different form of social market. It's not a matter of a sort of social democratic seeing you know the market is inevitably amoral and then trying to limit it or gather up lots of money from the market and redistribute it we need from the bottom up a justice system and a sense that into all economic exchanges there enter negotiations about social benefit or shared benefit and so on and that actually you know a stable economy based on trust and so on is in line with these moral purposes. And I'm in favor of new sort of arguments that suggest, well, there aren't kind of free market exchanges with real information if there isn't a moral dimension, because otherwise people will always try to conceal certain things. So that questions of, you know, 
the just price, the just wage, just profits, and so on. These are essential. It's wholly arbitrary to think of a monetary exchange as an entirely amoral exchange. And the kind of commercial society we had in the late Middle Ages didn't think like that. The evolution towards capitalism is simply not necessary. So we need to reinvent something like guilds, virtuous associations, but also these things need to be ultimately within the purview of the law courts. So it's not a question of the market, either or, or limiting the market. It's the question of what kind of market and what kind of market the law sets up and allows. John Milbank's call to re-embed markets in society, a thought that's almost unthinkable on current terms, is an instance of just how radical radical orthodoxy is. But he believes that nothing less will do, because without a thorough rethinking of our tradition, we will never find what he once called the future we have missed. On Ideas, you've listened to the sixth episode of The Myth of the Secular. The series concludes tomorrow at this time. It was written and presented by David Cayley, with the help of Bernie Lucht, Dave Field, and Liz Nage. You can revisit the program or download a podcast at our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter, and find out what's coming up on the show. The executive producer of Ideas is Pam Bertrand, and I'm Paul Kennedy. The news is next on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius 159.